Welcome to Don't Feed the Trolls, a podcast where we talk without the croc. My name's Matt. His name's Nate. Today, our seafaring pirate friend, Ryan Downs, is going to uh, give us a history lesson. But first, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but Nate's been on fire with the memes on Facebook. Have I? Yeah, you have been. You've just been cranking them out. I don't know what you do. Uh, you know, I don't know if you have extra time on your hands when you're out there at the farm. When I'm watching baseball, there's like five hours sometimes, and you're right. just like, well, I'm going to sit here on my computer and make memes <laughs> while I'm watching the game. <laughs> Perfect. Well, well, people have been enjoying them. If you guys like silly memes, um, Nate, Nate prefers political memes, because uh, why not make fun of uh, politics in this season of America? You can like our incredibly popular Facebook page at facebook.com slash Trolls podcast. We don't take ourselves or our Facebook page too seriously. <laughs> new one on new one on Ken Bone singing "Bad to the Bone." So if you old Ken Bone is gold right now. I think we got like sixty thousand <laughs> plays out of Ken Bone. Thanks, Ken. <laughs> Doesn't translate to too many podcasts listens, but who cares, <laughs> no. right? We have twenty seven thousand likes on our Facebook page, and they're all they're all because people want to see funny political memes. Yeah, we're not we're not the smartest guys in the world to think that the conversion rate of a three second meme would translate into a <laughs> to an a hour long, hour long podcast. <laughs> yeah, but welcome if you did see the Cambone meme and you uh you you subscribe to our podcast. Welcome to the show. That's right. If you're one of those people that or watched a video actually and then listen to the podcast, let us know because we want to we want to see if anyone out there got on this podcast yeah. because of my stupid my stupid uh, memes. That Rabbit trail. So uh, we got some troll mail. Trenton Warsham here sent us an email about Chupacabra, and I figured, Nate, you could uh, read it to our listeners. First off, not sure if I spelled it right, but a while ago, the mythical beast of lure was finally revealed a while ago in Texas. He said a while ago twice. We'll just overlook that, Trenton. <laughs> oh, no, oh no, he no. did. I thought yeah, he, he said did. I no, did. No, no, you're, you're, you're reading it correctly. <laughs> a quick Google search will pull up images and stories. Maybe Bigfoot is the same? A creature of lore that hasn't fully been seen for what it is. So is he saying the chupacabra got is found and they know what it is now? Yeah, I looked it up and um, it's like this, you know, they, everyone said, we found the chupacabra in Texas. And uh, it's a it's a it's actually like a hairless, ugly dog mutt. Yeah, uh, that it was like the dead, this dead dog. That looked really insane and ugly looking, and everyone thought it was um, a chupacabra. But then they, uh, yeah, exactly. But then they, uh, then they did DNA tests, and it was uh, canine in nature. So, well, maybe it is a canine, and it's just a wild dingo <laughs> version of it. Yeah, it was. I think it was like a. It was a mix. It was a mutt of some sort. But what he's what what I guess what Trenton's saying is that maybe uh, maybe Bigfoot's. Uh, Something. Yeah, uh, Bigfoot was trending on Facebook yesterday. It had more trends than just about anything. So wow. There you go. Was there a new discovery or? Uh, they saw one in. Uh, they saw one in like Indonesia or something walking through a waterfall. Really? Yeah. Did they and get it on their an, iPhones? Someone was filming it from a distance uh, out in the in the wilderness, and this big creature walks through this waterfall and keeps going. Fortunately, it's not a close up video, but hey, still getting some love on Facebook. Does it look good? Does it look Actually, believable? Billy to you? Power sent me a link to it, and I saw it, and I thought, <laughs> "What about the Indonesian? Is there is there more? Sorry, go ahead. Is there more uh, likelihood of Indonesian uh, Bigfoots? Is there is there lore there down in the South Pacific? Oh yeah, they're all over the world, man. Yeah, uh, yeah no, they're all over, they see them all over the place. They're they're called different things, but the Yetis, obviously, in the Himalayas, and oh right, right, yeah. They see them in Russia. They see them. There's one in the one in the, the one in Australia is called the Yowie, I think. Um, and uh, anyway, some of them are smaller. Some of them are only like six foot tall. Some of them are ten well, foot tall. 
it, you never know. Some of them are a hundred foot tall, and those oh, are I'm called King smack Kong. you in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> they climb the big building in New York. Uh, all right, Empire State Building. That's the one. Uh, d- uh, if you guys see any uh, Yowies or uh, Bigfoots or King Kongs. Uh, please email us at don't email the trolls at gmail.com or use our contact form on our website. We'd love to hear any of your stories or any other emails, um, any other comments, questions, concerns that you might have about our show. Next, Patreon. Welcome, new patrons. Nate, would you like to read some names? Because I really prefer your pronunciations. Joel Kircher, Jeremy Chandler, Jackson Comstock, Megan Peterson. Well, we really appreciate you guys for supporting our show. All of you. <clears throat> That's right, we do. And if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash don'tfeedthetrolls. We are growing. We're getting closer to the prize at the end of the road. Yeah, which is what? A million dollars a month? Which is uh, basically just you and I just becoming investigative journalists and going out with microphones and yelling at people and making it real good. (laughs) You never know what could happen with this podcast, Matt. We should just keep going, keep pushing. I know, I know. I'm feeling it. All right, well, let's get to our topic of the day. So uh, this story starts out. This is kind of interesting. I remember being, I think it was in Florida at the time I was on vacation. But I was sitting there, and there was this like small news uh, broadcaster was talking about this story. And then I started Googling it more. But um, he was saying how there's these ancient stones, and they've been around for a long time. But they talk about the history of the people and how when they built uh, anything past these stones... They were washed away in the uh, in the waves in the water, right? And and uh, it was talking about how just as time progresses, as history moves on, we forget we forget these things, and they didn't they didn't remember these stones, or they didn't care about the stones. They thought, oh, that's just the old school people. They don't know about right. new technology. We got these new walls that keep the water out. We don't need to worry about these old <laughs> stones, right. right? Right. But this whole article uh, was explaining how we forget the past. We write off this the history right. of warnings, like don't do these things, and, um, and and to me it's interesting because it's like there's a couple things going on here. One is somebody took the time to put these in stone, right? Right. Like they didn't just they didn't just like you know make it a law. Like let's just make a law. Yeah. You can't. It's like no, let's etch this in stone and stick this right here. To, right. So they etched see. it in stone in 1896 too, so it took extra time. <laughs> there weren't like yeah. laser. Or like, you know, etching tools beyond just yeah. a guy with a chisel, you know, yeah. trying to make sure that his the generations that followed him would be um, safe. Exactly. You couldn't go to stoneengravings.com and order some stones <laughs> and have them shipped to you in 24 hours. No, they took some time. So, so yeah. So the, these people, the, some, of the, some of the etchings and the warnings carved into these slabs, um, which you can still see today say essentially translated high dwellings are the peace and harmony of our descendants remember the calamity of the great tsunamis do not build any homes below this site very clear warning 
yeah, um, yeah. by 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 uh, Japanese great grandfathers in 1896. And then, of course, people eventually did build homes below that site and putting their faith in the giant seawalls that the government built saying, oh, we got technology. We're good. And of course, you know, how the story goes. Many of those low coastal towns are still recovering from uh, the 2011 tsunami. Yeah, yeah. But exactly. people don't seem to learn, you know, like people people do what they, they want and they don't heed warnings. Well, there's probably places in the south that have flooded or places near like Louisiana and stuff, New Orleans. Um, San Francisco had a crazy earthquake in 1908, it was. So right. I think the tendency now is, like like you said, we have all this technology and we can do whatever we want. We can build stronger buildings. We can put right. seawalls up. And uh, it's funny. Sometimes nature says, uh-uh, ain't going to happen. We getting over this wall and we going to go in. But I, I don't know. I guess maybe to me it's like, why doesn't the government or somebody – on the outside, who understands the history, say, okay, we're going to turn all this into public land. It's just going to be like a giant park right. or something. So nobody can build there. The, the dumb right. thing is, is that somebody, somebody sells the real estate and somebody builds on it and everyone's like, oh, wait a minute. This is like a flood zone. Right. Bro. Well, it's only a, yeah, but it's only a flood zone every hundred years when there's a massive tsunami that comes crashing through. But no one remembers that. You know, everyone, you know, they live their whole lives and it's never flooded. It's got to be good. Well, same with San Francisco. I mean, a, a big earthquake's coming. It's coming. It's been a long time. They say every 100 years or so. See what happens to those real estate values uh, when that happens. Yeah. I'm not laughing because that's probably going to be pretty disastrous if it happens in our lifetime. It feels almost a little bit um, like, well, I don't know. You you built your house in Tornado Alley. Uh, don't build don't... your house on the sandy land. Right? So, I, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Look, I live in Tennessee. There's tornadoes that come through here. Um, what do I do if it happens to me? I guess I knock on wood right now, right? Because it could happen. Well, when you maybe when you get the warning, you get out. But at the same time, that's your your house, so you got to go back to it and clean up and figure out what you're going to do with your life. Yeah. I mean, I, I that's a whole different topic: the psychology of where you live, what you call home, and how you will basically go through hell to protect it, to maintain it to go back to it to stay with it through the storms of life that's probably more of a psychological question but let's bring our friend ryan downs on to help us with our questions about history and history repeating itself and how do we understand the details of history because i think this is really important we want to crack open the net of how does this apply to history and humans not learning lessons right is that kind of where you want to go with this okay. yes and ryan is unique because he like most people with college degrees in history, lives on a boat full time. So, uh, yeah, we'll ask him about that. But uh, let's get him on. Welcome, Ryan Downs, to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a bit about your educational background and what you do now? Sure, yeah. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, so I run an educational sailing vessel uh, here in Northwest Washington. Uh, I was educated at Humboldt State University, where I have a degree in history. Uh, my focus in uh, my education was mostly American history. Uh, political and mostly modern. So uh, modern history is defined generally from the mid 1700s to the late 20th century. 
So that's kind of what I studied mostly. It's kind of funny. I have to tell the story. I have to tell the story, though, how I met Ryan Downs. <laughs> All right. Dan and I's first band, we were called uh, the Renomes. Uh-huh. The Renomes. <laughs> the Renomes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was me, Dan, and uh, a couple buddies from college. And I met Ryan because Dan's like, my buddies are coming down. And Ryan comes out, and he's literally dressed as Popeye for this Halloween party. So I met, oh, that's right. I met him as Popeye, and I didn't realize that you would literally go on to be... A sailor man. The sailor man. <laughs> <laughs> Cans of spinach so and that's all. So that's, that's like what I've envisioned for you every time I see anything from you. I think, I think Popeye. I think that moment when I met you. So it's just funny that you work on a boat for a living. It's just, just funny. Yeah, I think, uh, I, think it was, I was on the way to becoming that. And uh, I kind of idolized it back then. And then uh, I was like, oh, what the heck? I'll, uh, I'll just do it. I'll just, I'll just do it professionally. Yeah, I love you, it. You're, you're living the dream. And you have a historical boat. Can you tell us about your boat a little bit? Yeah, I own an um, old Northwest fishing vessel that was built in 1947 that I live aboard. Uh, it's called the Duke and, uh, yeah, it fished in Alaska in the fifties and sixties. And then again in the eighties and nineties. And, uh, I'm just kind of restoring her and living aboard that. And, uh, people can follow the Duke on Instagram, correct? Yeah, that's true. It's, um, Cascadia underscore discoveries. And, uh, I also have a Facebook, uh, for Cascadia discoveries and, uh, yeah, check those out. I take people out on trips in the San Juan islands and British Columbia, um in the summers when it's nice even in the fall it was actually a really nice fall so i took a couple of trips out there with folks too instagram at fishing vessel duke um yeah i'd have to check that out uh (laughs) (laughs) well yeah the facebook is good um yeah so look up cascadia discoveries on facebook wait so what makes you what makes you get into wanting to like i I, the average person's just like who wants to work on a boat i mean that just seems so old school like what, what what got you into that that's a good question. I'd have to, I was in college and, uh, I didn't really like it cause I felt like it was one of those things. I, I feel like we get told a certain, a certain couple of, of standard lies when we're growing up. One is, uh, okay. What everybody does is you go to high school and then you graduate. And then what you do is you go to college and then you graduate. And then, uh, maybe you get to do what you always wanted to do for like a few months, but then you're supposed to get married and buy a house and uh, get a mortgage and, uh, and I was like, yeah. wow, that 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 little like period of doing what I want to do is not nearly long enough for me. So I was almost done with school. I took a hiatus and I went sailing on a ship called the uh, Lady Washington, which is the state ambassador ship of the state of Washington. And it's a replica of the first American ship to come around Cape Horn to the West Coast in the 1780s. So really, um, wow. Whoa. one of the reasons that like the West Coast is America is because of the ship. And uh, so they do a training program where they'll teach you everything they know that they can in two weeks. And then after those two weeks, that's kind of your probationary period. And they're like, hey, you did great. Uh, We want you around. Or, uh, hey, not so much. But, uh, yeah, they wanted me around. So I kept working on it for a while. But I And then I moved on to other ships and got my captain's license eventually. But I I think the original impetus was a, uh, a movie from the 30s called Captain's Courageous. And if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. But um, I think I saw that movie when I was a kid, and I always dreamed of working on like a traditional wooden ship and being a sailor and being kind of a like 
protector of kind of an art form that's kind of gone. Right. Yeah. And so that was kind of what I was. That's very in. sweet. You do also do a lot of history, you know, reenactments and. Uh... Yeah, I did. Um, I focused on like 19th and 20th century history. So I did a lot of uh, when I was. Unfortunately, I don't do a lot of it anymore just because of living on the water so much. But I did uh, Civil War education and uh, reenactments for generally. Let's see. When do they study that? Eighth grade. I think we study that period in history. And so I was mostly teaching eighth graders about uh, the U.S. Civil War. And then I was also uh, involved in an organization in the Bay Area teaching about uh, World War II history and uh, also working for the History Channel as an extra and stuff like how's that. that back, how's that background work going? That extra work, you probably get fed pretty good, right? <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot of cheese and crackers and uh, low pay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was funny. I think yeah. the best we ever got paid was doing a My Chemical Romance video. Uh, oh, nice. What was it? What was that song called? Ghost of You. And oh, we yeah. like got in Very a bu- historical. Yeah, we got a bunch of uh, uh, like landing boats and assaulted the beaches of uh, of uh, Santa Barbara. And, uh, oh, nice! I didn't like, realize that. That's great. That's that's funny. I, I didn't realize you were a part of that. <laughs> yeah, me and a couple of friends did that. It was pretty. It was cool. like Saving Private Ryan. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So you know, there, I think I think the citizens of of uh, Santa Barbara were a little maybe weirded out watching a bunch of Nazis walk down the street with machine guns. But uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> Hunting a bunch of goths with uh, eyeliner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I could say how Matt and I kind of got on this topic. Matt and I were talking, I think, on text the other day about how uh, basically there were these stones carved in, uh, in, in Japan that warned people not to build below them because of the tsunamis. And they've been around for like 120 years. And yet we ignore history, build our homes below these stones that are great-grandparents put in the ground, and uh, we, die, we die in floods. We, no matter how much technology, no matter how many, how much the government builds up these walls to protect the coast, the tsunami's coming and it's going to wipe them all out. And so I guess the questions are, what is it about history repeating itself and how important is it that we understand the details of history? And I guess, I mean, just as a third question, how can we even trust that the history we are being told is correct? I think that's a big a big issue, especially in not only uh, the Japanese story is a great story. And I've, I've heard that one before. And I think the, uh, I think that the danger in not only to life and limb, like in Japan's case, but uh, I'm sure we'll get into this as well. Our present political situation. I, I feel like there's two really scary issues. And one is the idea of American exceptionalism that we uh, are different uh, that we are going to do things differently. And the right. idea that uh, history, because of our lack of interest or our intellectual laziness, can be used against us in poor arguments. Um, right. And that's that's something that hmm. scares me a lot. And that's something I uh, I endeavor in my day-to-day life to, uh, to help people out with. Because um, I think history is incredibly important. And I think we also have an aversion to it as students when we're young, uh, which is unfortunate because I think it's poorly taught in many ways. So right. these, are, these are subjects that are dear to my heart. Every time you turn around, someone says, nope, it didn't happen that way. It happened this way. 
you know, uh, that sort of history is constantly sort of changing. I mean, how do you know what's good info and what's bad info? This is going to sound weird. And there's actually an even weirder word for it. These history of the study of history is called historiography. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, we spent a lot of time on this uh, when I was a student and I've spent a lot of time on it in my personal life. But history is interpreted different ways at different points in time. Uh, the, uh, most famous example is, uh, there was a very famous historian that delivered a speech at the, uh, world's expo in Chicago in, I believe, 1893. And what he said at that, uh, might be 1892. What he said at that Chicago expo was that the frontier can now be considered to be closed. And we lived as Americans with this specter of the West and what it meant And it was not only a direction, but it was kind of a state of mind for Americans. There's something out there that we don't that we don't know. There's still something mysterious. There's still something to be discovered. There's something to be claimed. There's something to be uh, named. And the closing of that he saw as a very dangerous feature for the American psyche. What he said is, how now will we define ourselves uh, as men? This was specifically addressed to men, by the way. And if we can't send Mm -hmm. our young men west to conquer, to discover, to do all these things. Right. Identity crisis. Exactly. And so uh, Hmm. this becomes unique in the next presidential election. um, And then the uh, assassination of McKinley, where uh, Roosevelt takes over. Because Teddy Roosevelt very much defined himself uh, as this manly man. He had left the city. He had moved west. Uh, and when he became president, like he was a big game hunter, hunter, cowboy, soldier of fortune, really interesting guy. But he brought that to the presidency and he brought that to the national ethos. Yeah. We realized that the frontier had stopped because of this historian at the coast. And then we extended it into the Pacific. Um, and so when we look at that, that's historians looking at things in the 1890s. A very specific way. We have a male identity crisis now because of the closing of the West. Now we look at that history very differently. We see the Spanish-American War as imperial conquest. They didn't right. look at it that way back then. We saw ourselves as the exception to British Empire, to the uh, floundering German Empire, the Belgian Empire, and the Congo. Right. We saw ourselves as the moral exception to that. When, indeed, if you look at our conduct in the sure. Philippines, that was hardly... Oh yeah, a hundred years later, you got hindsight's twenty twenty, and you can see, right. oh, we we were just like them, right? And what's interesting also is in the eighteen nineties, the uh, wounded knee massacre takes place, and so concurrently with this image of uh, the frontier closing, we are still closing it by force of arms. <laughs> we're still right. finishing off the Indian Wars, uh, and yet we're lamenting its passing at the same time. That's very right. strange. And mm. uh, and the historiography of that changes over time. The 2020 comment you just made. What's interesting is historians at that time were already writing the history when we were still in the midst of it. And they right. looked at it a very certain way. And now we look at it completely different. The manifest destiny history. <laughs> like this is happening. This will happen. Right. And, uh, you know, nowadays we look at Vietnam very differently. Uh, than we would have uh, in the the years just you know just before seventy five or you know even the years right after we looked at Vietnam very differently than we do now. 
And when you say we, are you talking about the the community of his, historians or historologists? I think, uh, unfortunately, I, I, the the way I was thinking of it is is in is in popular uh, popular culture, and there is a pop history um, in this country that's I, I think very palpable. And unfortunately, it centers around uh, Hollywood. Hmm. So Hollywood uh, and pop culture tell a very certain story of history. And I think we, in as a culture, I think we tend to use uh, examples that we draw from popular culture to define history. And that's right. Gets a little bit into the like the intellectual laziness I'm talking about. Um, you know, Wikipedia as great as great as that is is hardly a source for research. Um, and there's so many <laughs> books out there. There's so many wonderful. That's books like out my there. number one go to source for research. So that's not comforting <laughs> to know. Here's what's great about here's what's great about <laughs> Wikipedia. The best thing about Wikipedia is the bottom of it, where they have okay, all the resources the sites, that you can go yeah. investigate. And that's what's wonderful about it. So it's a good it's a good like. Someone told me the title of something, and I don't know what that is, a historic event or whatever. So I look it up on Wikipedia. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Here's some more reading for it. Well, so how can we understand history properly, and, and how do we really know it's correct history and not revisionist or reframing or mythologizing? Yeah, how do guys like me who didn't understand anything you guys just talked about for the last <laughs> 10 minutes? Uh, my dad and my grandfather were the two guys who interested his father were the two guys who interested me in history in the first place. Um, so I have a great deal of respect for my father in that he uh, got me interested in, in this stuff originally. So my, my father grew up in a generation where you had uh, two news networks. Yeah. Right? Okay. So right. the uh, advertising was minimal. Um, there, you know, obviously you can see like, uh, Edward R. Murrow, like smoking Chesterfields or something like that, you know? So there, there were definitely <laughs> like advertising, but it was a different kind of advertising, um, community. And that dominated news in a very different way. We hired guys like Edward R. Murrow and Walter Cronkite and, and these guys to really, uh, we, they, we gave them a lot more power, editorial power, and we trusted, we trusted them. Hmm. Now my, the conversation I had with my dad is he's like, I don't know, I don't know what news agency I should be paying attention to or listening to. In fact, of the matter is we're just inundated with all of this information and people now are kind of picking and choosing what they see as fact based on who's delivering it. Right. That, that's weird. They're trusting a source. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same with historic information. There's a, there, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You know, there's so many documents there's so many people in different areas of history who have def who have written different books about an event, who have who have talked about an event differently, who look at it from um, different perspectives, like a feminist perspective on a historic event that's never been looked at that way, for instance. Uh, so you can really get lost and mired in, and it's it is hard to find something you trust. And I think the answer is which nobody likes. Is just read it all <laughs> or <laughs> or uh, define the area that you are coming from, your knowledge level of something. Look up authors. That's a great thing about the Internet. There's so much information. Look up the authors who uh, you're interested, who have written about that, that um, who, you know, have written other things who are well respected by institutions that are great at history. Northwestern University has got a great historic uh, department. So I, there's a lot of different um, ways you can look at, like how the books are seen and stuff like that 
perhaps the the one thing that I've seen happen over the years is there is this sort of attack that there is this certain sort of liberal history, and then there's this like real true history. And I don't know why. Sometimes it pertains to America as a Christian nation. But if you argue the facts, people get defensive. Do you think that we are so tied into being an American or being a Christian or being whatever that we, we view history different because we have these current titles strapped to us that we can't even read the true history? That's a, that's a, that's a rough one. I, th- I think we're a very young nation. Okay, there's certain, there's certain themes that like repeat themselves. Uh, two of my favorite books. One was extremely dry, but it was really, it has one of the best titles ever. It was called the, uh, it was called the Alcoholic Republic. And it was talking about, uh, American alcohol consumption per, per, per person. Yeah. Did you watch Ken Burns Prohibition? Yeah. Wasn't that great? Oh man. I mean, you don't even realize how much alcohol we consumed until you watch that documentary. It's absolutely insane. It's absolutely so, and, and you know so prohibition. Is Ken Burns a good source like if I don't want to go to college uh, can I just watch Ken Burns documentaries <laughs> Okay now and now we're getting into opinion but I think I think Ken Burns is a great filmmaker right. I think he handles things very fairly Uh now if yeah. you look at like a program like The Civil War and you take uh maybe his opinions south of the Mason Dixon that those opinions may change Um right. but I I think he was even handed and I think he handled it very fairly uh, like I get, I get, uh, I watch baseball and I get all emotional. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, just like watching like the Dodgers in 1947, you get all teary eyed, you know, I've watched Ken Burns prohibition. I've watched Ken Burns, the dust bowl. I've watched baseball. I've watched almost all the Ken Burns one and the dust bowl was freaking phenomenal. I don't even think I even understood as a, hist- as a history student in high school, how the dust bowl was the greatest environmental uh, disaster. disaster yeah yeah in the in the history of the united states the biggest environmental disaster and we didn't even know this i'm like was that like was that like grapes of wrath like yes all the dead farms and 10 years dust blew across the midway it, it it was insane and i just feel like it sucks that like as a as a kid growing up in america you don't even learn about one of the biggest events ever in terms of like understanding what it was. Maybe that's just youth. You just you can't understand it as a Do kid. we as Americans undervalue learning history more so than other cultures? Do you find that or are we just on par with human nature? Uh I think I think on par with human nature. I think a, a great example that I like to use a lot the the collapse of the British Empire, which uh I I kind of deem is like 1945. Six. Okay. So World War One absolutely decimated Britain, um, but the Somme, the British lost so many soldiers in the Somme, we can't even can't even understand. It was more than Gettysburg. We can't we can't even fathom the the the, the absolute desperate bloodbath that, that was. So that was the, the the British Empire was already kind of crumbling. They lost a generation of men in World War One, and then immediately twenty years later, before the you know before we can recover, before the nation. The, the United Kingdom can recover. We have another war with the same people. Um, and the British empire kind of made a deal with a lot of the colonies, India, for example, saying like, Hey, we got, we got one more of these. If you help us out with one more of these, you guys get autonomy and home rule. And that was the creation of India and Pakistan in 1947. And a wow. lot of other colonies that were let go. Uh, I think the British came to realize Somewhere in the middle of World War II, and this is um, just from what I've read and what I've extrapolated from that, that I think they realized, what have we been getting out of this empire game? 
We've lost right. two generations of mm. men in 20 years. What are we really getting out of this? We are paying a lot of blood, and we're not getting a lot back. You had very conservative governments in Britain uh, up to that point, and a lot of people don't realize this. In 1945, before the war was over, Britain vo voted Churchill out of office. They blamed him for the war, they blamed him for everything, and they ousted him. And we don't really think about, and they brought in the labor government to run the country. We don't really think right. about that. We think of Churchill as this mm. monumental leader that brought right. Britain through through the war, but they were sick. That of was it was like the the original Brexit. Yeah, there you go, there you go. <laughs> and so you know, at the end of the war, they they kind of left the empire game. And uh, I wonder if we uh, what happened with our thinking. But it seems like the United States picked up that baton because there was nobody left to hold it. And, uh, and, the, and then we become the inheritors of that. So is it a uniquely American thing? Is it a worldwide thing? Does it require, uh, age for a government and Republic, uh, and democracy? I don't yeah. Know. I mean, some of these, some of these countries, you know, when we're talking European countries are thousand, thousand years old, 1500 years old, mm -hmm. you know, Greece is what, I mean, not, not, not in its current state, but it's been called Greece for thousands of years. Mm hmm so, uh, so yeah, there is sort of like we're the new exceptional, different, successful empire, um, but there is there is this sense that yeah, there are warning America, stones. There are warning stones. <laughs> there are there are warning stones. That's I mean that's a great central saying? theme for this. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, like one of my one of my favorite historians. Her name is uh, her name's Barbara Tuckman, and uh, she wrote a. a just wonderful books, but one of my favorites and one of the most easily digestible is called The March of Folly. And the central question behind the book is, why do governments, with evidence to the contrary, pursue policies that lead to their own demise? Hmm. And there are, and you know, she starts with, uh, she starts with the example of Troy. Why would Troy, who had every reason to believe a Greek deception, let this giant wooden horse in their city. Uh, all the all the way to yeah. a all the way to a chapter which is entitled "America Betrays Herself in Vietnam." That's funny because we're going to do an episode on whistleblowing, and that's that's what came up as the original whistleblower was the guy <laughs> was trying to warn Troy not to not to let this in. I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, I was just prepping for another episode. So that's funny you brought that up. Oh yeah, no, I'm fascinated by that. I mean, that's. I, I'm going to listen. I think for me, here's the interesting thing. Talking about empire. I can't even get half of my friends when I'm just arguing to admit that America is an empire and acts that way. They go, no, no, no. We need the military everywhere. I'm just We're like, bringing peace. We're bringing democracy. Yeah. You're like, well, uh, that's cool and all, but can't do it forever, bro. So <laughs> what are we going to do? You know what I mean? So you can't even get people to admit it on, on, just the civilian end. Well, historic. How, how are yeah. governments even going to own up to it? Right. Historically speaking, is our time as as the greatest empire in the last uh, 60, 70 years? Is our time? Is our run over or coming to a close? Do you think? Uh, I think that all depends on uh, what we want. I, I think. And does it matter? Does it really matter? I yeah. Mean, when when we could be like Britain going. Yeah. The, we're spending a lot of blood and what are we getting? I think it all boils down to what do we, what do we want? And I think that unfortunately democracies are, democracies are really inefficient. 
Yeah. A good, <laughs> so, old, a good old monarchy would help with a good monarch on top. Right, right. 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 I, I, ge- <laughs> I generally, I generally uh, caution people and tell them that I, I, I might be a closet fascist uh, just because you get so disappointed when you see democracies make terrible choices brexit for example on the right. on the basis of uh pure, you know a pure elect, uh, uh, election and maybe we need the philosopher king you know uh right. which is a f- don't let the mob that is capable of riding the streets and behaving very rationally make decisions for you get someone who's reasonable <laughs> right to lead the country and then and then of course that doesn't work when the monarch is unreasonable but <laughs> sure uh, a reasonable monarch would be far far more effective than a uh, than a democracy. Yeah, but but right now there are people listening to this that are going, I can't believe he said that. He said the word fascist. <laughs> yeah, and they're freaking out right now. And I'm and I'm able to sit here in my chair and and hear it and go, I'm not. Those words don't bother me because like I understand what you're saying. Like I I believe in freedom, a hundred percent, and I think you do too. But I don't think people realize that. Well, we're taking all these assets and all this money and we're blowing it because a couple people think we want to police the world. And uh, I, I guess I guess for me, it's just how can it how can how can society people have these conversations without just feeling like they're going against their own like patriotism if they have these tough conversations like sitting down at the national anthem or whatever. Everyone's ready to kill those people. It's just like it's not a big deal. It's not a, it's not a big deal. I, th- I think like, a lot of, it, it, you know the, what I mean? Yeah, I do. I think the English language is funny too. Uh, and discourse is funny. When you frame a question a certain way, you're guaranteed the answer that you want and you can call right. it a conversation, but fact is it's, 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 it's not. So when you say to somebody like in the form of a, you know, and like, there's a lot of great news agencies I can name who are just expert at this. Um, so how criminal is Hillary Clinton? <laughs> well, you you framed the you framed the question. No, so how you know? criminal are her actions? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just like yeah, well, you're a lawyer, how criminal is her actions? Yeah. <laughs> so you've now controlled the conversation by framing the argument. So when you frame the argument, like uh, you know, uh, how racist is Donald Trump? Well, I mean, you could frame it anyway. I mean, exactly. Goes. Uh, yeah. uh, Colin Kaepernick. How criminal is that question? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Colin, the Colin Kaepernick thing's a great example. They have framed that argument. Uh, in many venues so that we're not uh, actually listening to the person making the statement, right? We're listening to people arguing about the statement that they think he's making. Right. Right. Uh, So the, the, the broader question is why are we doing this? And and I think the answer is we, we wanted to, why are we the empire right now? We wanted to be that we have an election every four years. We have chosen that future for ourselves in we, we chose that in 1945 we are constantly electing the the president who will make america great again every four years we're doing it again we want to be the best in the world and we we vote that way and that's what our that's what we demand of our government government by and for the people right yeah because you're only a man and a man's got to learn to take it try to believe though the going gets rough that you got a hand tough to make it
I, I always I always find it funny when people are like, they, the, the government is going to do this and going to do that, and it's going to be us versus them. I'm like, no, I, you vote. You, you vote them into office. You realize you could vote them out, right? Like, they don't control anything that you don't want them to control, but people seem to have this uh, almost like a schism. Where they're like, they are they are after us. And uh, I just think that's so false, especially in a democracy where you can just sway a, a populace of people to do one thing and you change the whole face of government. Um, of course, they don't want us to think that way because they're well entrenched, especially the two-party system. Who's but they? They. <laughs> <laughs> the Republicans and the Democrats are working, are colluding together in a conspiracy against third-party candidates. In your own argument, using oh, the word no, they. Right. I love I it. Know. Uh, and there's historic examples of this, of people you can vote for that uh, say or do something that's off script. Um, I think that's the attractiveness of Donald Trump right now. He uh, right. tells it like it is. He's saying things that no one has ever said before. Uh, as as a politician, yeah. as as a politician, and because he's the anti politician in an era where people are uber politician, yeah, disappointed by professional politicians, uh, he comes as a, ref, a a fresh breeze for some people. But there's there's one woman who I always uh, kind of idolized as a kid, uh, and by kid I mean like in high school. Um, her name was Jeanette Rankin, and she was a uh, Senator from Montana, and she was the lone vote that was against going to war in 1941. Wow. The lone dissenting vote to go into World War, uh, World war II. Wow. That's, that's a powerful, powerful thing. What, so after Pearl Harbor? This was right after Pearl Harbor. Uh, FDR oh went God. to the joint session of the Senate and uh, House and asked for a declaration of war. That's the famous uh, day of infamy, infamy speech. And, uh, and it's not so much that I agreed with her. Right. Um, I wasn't there, so I won't, uh, pretend to know what I would have said or done. However, uh, the fact that she stood on principle and she, uh, stood against, um, uh, putting ourselves in an armed conflict. I respect that. And I like to, I like to, contemplate on her decisions that this was someone who very much so had a con wasn't there a lone vote on the patriot act too and it was a woman? Uh, i looked it up i looked it up senator russ feingold of wisconsin was the only senator who voted against the patriot act man sometimes you just you really appreciate the bible belt hey guys I, I can handle this conversation. Look at me. I know a few things or two. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there you go. Well, I, here's the thing about history. Except I deal with for that it was a man, Nate. Unless it was a man? A, unless the girl's name's Russ. Well, you know, he was <laughs> one, close. <laughs> one person. Today, man, woman, who it's all the same. Here's yeah, the deal. we're all the same. <laughs> we can all use the same bathrooms now, guys, so we're cool, right? <laughs> unless here's you're deal. in North Carolina. <laughs> exactly. But what I'm saying is the theme of of just we don't give a shit about history, the way things were done, right? We think we think we're doing it better when in, in fact it's worse. I think the I think that comes and goes in cycles, and I also think our culture is very young. Uh, this goes kind of with our idea about the uh, with our kind of thesis here about the stones in Japan. But there is a legend uh, from the Yakima tribe uh, on the up, upper reaches of the Columbia River. Uh, about salmon and the, the legend is about people abusing the salmon 
And eventually mm. the salmon is depleted and there's nothing but salmon bones on the beach. And uh, people are starving and lamenting that they overfished the salmon. And uh, Coyote, the character of Coyote is kind of a... Um, of like a trickster, but kind of also a world... Pro- He's kind of like Prometheus, maybe, um, for, you know, Western culture. Anyway, he uh, he brings the salmon back to life. Uh, long story short, it's a lesson about, the, about how we treat the salmon on the Columbia River. Now, this comes into, like, sharp focus nowadays when we're having so much trouble keeping wild salmon on the Columbia River this time, not just because of overfishing, but because of uh, dams. So... Right. Our culture is uh, so young and theirs is so old that right. they're able to remember 10 to 15,000 years ago through oral tradition. Right. We're really not well, able to do that. And that's the thing, too, is I think um, mythology plays a role in history, right? Like, you, you know, clearly the coyote didn't um, resurrect fish, but mm-hmm. it teaches a lesson. And just passing that um, oral history down, that mythology down teaches a moral lesson um what do you say to that because we live in a post-enlightenment um you know world where we're all about facts and details and um because we're all about facts and details we can tend to focus too much on those things and not get maybe the moral of the story um you know we can start thinking about the melting point of steel and not really take a step back and say okay what really happened uh, so, so what do you say to that? Is there value to, is there value to mythology if it's passed down generationally? Let's say your grandparents tell you a story about the past. Is that, does that, is that relevant in our culture? I, I've, I hope so. <laughs> I feel like we've created kind of a wall for ourselves. And, uh, speaking as a historian, I'm like the tip of, we're the tip of the spear on this, on creating a wall between mythology and quote unquote a, a like scientific uh view of history and history is a really crappy science uh it's yeah. it's really a poor science i had a i had a history teacher that said uh you know this is this actually isn't a study of um facts as or a cataloging of facts which would be scientific this is this is a uh this is an accumulation of point of view Right. And an interpretation of correct from, from our current standpoint. So it's like huh, you're standing huh. in a place in time and you look back and you go, that's what happened. And it's almost through the, through the lens or the bias of, of where we are right now. Absolutely. And I, but think, in 50 years that might change. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, history, historiography, historiography documents that, but back to myth, I feel like, I feel like that's incredibly important and I feel like that needs to be included in the historiography as well. That is a, that is a way that people at that time looked at this and that needs to be documented. Right. right? And it has a lot to say to us today. I am not a, uh, you know, I grew up, uh, in similar, uh, I imagine, uh, religious backgrounds that you guys grew up in. Right. And yeah. Oh, yeah. I am not a biblical literalist. Uh, I don't care if, uh, Someone survived in the belly of a whale, and I don't care about scientifically proving that. What I do care about right. is the story, and what I do care about is the lesson, and what I do care the about moral, is yeah. what you take away from that. And right. I do the, the mythology yeah, yeah. of it is actually really important because you can get lost in the details of 
how big the fish would have to be and if it's sure. possible for a human. I mean, that's not the point. The point is, uh, well, the point's a lot deeper. You know, it's a metaphor that you can unpack, you know, for generations and generations, and people still read the story of Jonah and and get stuff out of it. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of with you on that, and maybe I'll take some crap for it, but, um, you know, as far as the Old Testament stories, I think it, it was people at a place in time, um, and it was written, in majority of those books were written while the nation of Israel was in exile, so they were enslaved and they were looking back at their journey as a nation and going why essentially trying to a- answer the question why are we here and and um it, from their perspective it was like well we disobeyed our god and that's why we're here now well i think i think what you're kind of describing is like uh like the like myth is greater than truth almost right right, right. because jesus tells these stories that are neither true nor false they didn't actually happen but and because they didn't actually happen, yeah, you don't get hung up on it. You don't get hung up on it, and <laughs> yeah. it's still relevant today. The the Good right. Samaritan story happens every single day in our culture, right? We the prodigal just, son, yeah. But if it it was actually a dude that actually existed, then we would be over there trying to dig up the bones and say, "Look, <laughs> look, the Good Samaritan's right here, right?" Is that what you're? Did kind it of happen hitting? or didn't it happen? Yeah. Right. And and, and yeah, I don't that, even think until the last few years I was able to say. Yeah, the literal the literalness of this doesn't actually matter to me. It doesn't matter if it actually happened. Is it true or is it not? Is it good right. or is it not? Is it helping me or is it not helping me? If right. it's not helping me, then it doesn't matter anyway, right? And history or myth or your grand your grandfather's memories, your grandmother's memories, all of those things all fit under the banner of the stories we tell ourselves about where we came from and where we're going. It's our bias, yeah. And that's uh, that's important uh, to document, and that's important to explore. And I think we've become a little intellectually lazy. Uh, I'm not going to blame the internet totally for this, but if you look at the if you look at the uh, you know okay, so you watch the debates or whatever. Those are a minute and a half with a thirty second rebuttal. That's hardly a debate. No, no, yeah. We're making <laughs> we're making memes. That's what we're doing. Right. <laughs> so those are, that's exactly long enough to have five memes come from that, right? <laughs> so uh, you look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates when uh, Abraham Lincoln was running against Stephen Douglas. And those, <laughs> those debates, they went from town to town. And one guy would talk for an hour. One guy would talk for an hour. And then they'd have like a 30-minute rebuttal. And these are people that just got out of the fields for nine hours. And they're going yeah. to the yeah. church to watch these debates for three hours. Are there transcripts of these debates anywhere? Uh, there, uh, um, no one sat down and long-handed all of them, but there are right. excerpts. Like synopsis. Yes, there are, and there's also some things written in their own hands, uh, small speeches that they would uh, deliver as well. But if right. you watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, they have it all in there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's in that. <laughs> yeah, right before Napoleon shows up. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that's a you know, and that's that was people's uh, attention span is just completely falling off a cliff. Is that what you're saying? And, and our and our 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 care for our own democracy. Democracy right. is is incredibly hard work, and it is all founded on the idea that you are a well informed voter, that you use your time to inform yourself, and you know, tell like we were talking about in the fifties and sixties, television. It was a uh, you know, an hour of news was a public service by those networks. That was right. the deal. 
it was a public service. You can uh, use the TV to entertain, but for one hour a day, you'll educate. Like that's that's like how the FCC made the deal with with uh, television when it was a new art and nobody knew how to regulate. Right. And now news is all entertainment. Precisely. And so, uh, and once again, this is what we've asked for. So the our democracy, our our culture has given us exactly what we wanted. I would say that Matt and I are both kind of guys, and you seem like you're in this vein where you're constantly consuming information, articles, ideas, stories. If you're just not a person who can consume that much, because I can talk and talk and talk and talk and debate back and forth and listen to people's ideas almost all day. I just don't think I'm like. There's so many times when I'm talking about Monsanto and all the bullshit they do, and people look at me like, "Oh, okay, dude, whatever, bro, get out of my." You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> right. I'm like, "Don't you realize? Trying to live that my life. There are two companies that are taking over all the food. That can't be good. Oh well, you know. Nate's dude, always like, Nate's always like, wake stars. up, you sheep, and I'm like, bah. <laughs> <laughs> right? You're right, and people uh, don't care. But they like, why? Care. Why would we care? About people dying in Syria when Dancing with the Stars is on in 10 minutes. That's a good point. Real good point. You know, so the... Uh, the, the Red two... and circuses. Red and circuses. We don't pay attention to them, right? right? Precisely. I mean, is it hardly surprising that a guy who was an entertainer is now running for the highest office? Ronald Reagan? I mean, we're, yeah. we're now combining those two circuses. Well, no, reality t- television. Uh, the Apprentice guy. Oh, What's his oh. name again? He said you're the fired. Actor? Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting too. Uh, we get the democracy we ask for, and you were asking about Nate. Uh, you know, books you should read if you're interested in a historic thing and stuff like that. Well, what you just said about a being a voracious uh, consumer of information that's the yeah. that's the that's the way any human being comes to any answer about any question. Right. You, you devour yeah. information. You look for it in different places. You find as much as you can, and eventually you're going to have to sit down and make the decision about what you think about a certain thing. Right. And the problem is, the problem is, though, is like I have so many people texting me all the time where they only consume like conservative talk radio and they go, dude, you're crazy, man. Have you checked this out? I'm like, uh, yeah, my whole uh, life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, so that's uh, the thing is like to be intellectually brave, you have to be willing to challenge your presuppositions and your biases and your notions about the way the world is. And to go and look for the challenge, I think, is what the bravest among us do. I don't often want to challenge my beliefs. I I want to be uh, assured in my beliefs as everyone else is, but um, but when when they are challenged, I do feel growth in that. I go, what there maybe there is a point there, you know. And I think that like people are just so unwilling and so afraid to challenge the structure of their lives, so that they don't they actually don't go and read everything. Like, but where does it turn into actions? When does it turn into like you don't purchase plastic water bottles because you're over it? When do you actually change your behavior? Because there's so many things I've done to change what I do. My life is tougher every day on a daily basis because I decided I want to get washable diapers for my kids. Awesome, (laughs) Nate. That's That's, amazing. that is incredible. No, I, I'm incredibly envious. Like that is the transition from information in to action out is also yes. like what makes you uh, a human being and what makes you an individual human being. So, uh, you know, the, the convictions that make you change um, come at, at different points in time. I really admire um, public figures, politicians, whatever, who say, 
you know what? I thought this for a long time, and then I changed my mind. Changed their mind, yeah. And who says that nowadays? Very few. Well, remember, remember when people were always blaming? I don't, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was Mitt Romney. He's a flip flopper. Yeah. Or what was it? Was it Al Gore? I can't remember. Yeah. But someone was a flip flopper. Yeah. And I'm like, well, okay, flipping and flopping is is one thing. Going back and forth and lying and kind of speaking out of two sides of your mouth. But uh, it, being able to flip from one position to another is is actually humility, and that's what you want out of a leader is being open to having their minds changed yep. by the facts. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. I, I have countlessly, uh, you know, countless times got into conversations like the one we're having now and someone presents me with new information and I go home and I look it up and uh, damn it, I have to change my opinion. <laughs> and like there's, yeah, a, there, yeah. there's the humility element like, ah, crap. But then like, Oh, well, now I'm better informed and I feel like a better informed human being. And now I can, right. you know, there's something so Western about and maybe nationalistic and maybe um, just American about planting your flag in the soil on issues, whether it be their uh, political, religious, um, societal, cultural yeah. issues and just plant your flag and then just defend your territory. And there's something seemingly more. I guess you would you would find this more in higher education. Uh, people who are there's an ongoing dialogue, and what they understand about the world is constantly changing, and they're adding to it and subtracting to it, and that's sort of valued at I guess in in higher learning, and then in more Eastern cultures, just the openness of your mind to go, you know, I don't know, and I'm willing, you know. And it's funny because I was reading something started to chime in. I was reading something about Billy Graham, how I, later on in his life, he was more open-minded, but the whole structure that he created was trying to hush him up because he kept saying things that included more people and had op- broader ideas. And they're like, Oh, he's cranky old crazy Billy Graham. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't know. know anything. <laughs> Shut up, Billy. Shut yeah. up, Billy. Stop talking nice about Buddhists. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know what I'd really like to see in American politics and maybe people will freak out by this statement too. We quote uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. a lot. White yeah. people love quoting him, you know, especially uh, when they're running for office and things like that. You know, who, you know what black American leader I would like to see quoted more? Malcolm X. Malcolm X. And, and here's why. <laughs> here's a man who became famous for saying things a certain way. And they were, um, they challenged uh, white America to its very core, challenged black America to its core. These were things that were unpopular to say and uh, uh, incendiary, one would say. He was a, he was a prophet of a, of, a, of a different, I guess, practice than Martin Luther King. Right. Malcolm X says something like, by any means necessary, and white people like get all weirded Freaked out by out. that. We lose our minds, right? But then he goes yeah. to Mecca, and... He goes on a pilgrimage to Mecca and meets Muslims from all over the world, uh, of every race, of every nationality, and he comes back a changed man. And this is already after he's having his falling out with the Nation of Islam in America. Uh, he starts singing a very different tune when he comes yeah. back from Mecca. He is disowned by hmm. the NOI, uh, who, like your Billy Graham example, the organization needs to hold on to that tone. It's all they've got. 
Right. Now he's that challenging narrative. that, and he was the figurehead of that. He helped create yeah. that dialogue, and now he's challenging that. So here's someone who came back and said, I learned something new, and I changed my mind, and they yeah. shot him for it. Well, the system, yeah, wow. the system wow. can't change. People can change, but the system can't, and that's why we have to leave our systems of belief and and political systems. I don't know if you felt this way, Matt, but the first couple of times I came home from tours, just being across the entire U.S. for three or four months, and I would come home, I would get in these arguments with my friends and my family because it changed me. I started to see the world differently, go to different churches, go to different places, talk to different people, talk to Mormon kids, talk to black kids, talk to white rich kids, talk to East Coast kids, talk to people up in Michigan, and all of a sudden you're like, I don't know what I think or believe about anything. Yeah. And it's just me in a van driving around having these experiences, and it came. you come home and it changes you, and you see these people who have these small town minds, and you're like, okay, I'm not saying that truth is relative, but you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so you're saying Malcolm X travels the world, comes home, says some different stuff. Sorry to cut all you guys off. but And then he basically gets killed by the system that he started because nobody had an open mind. Right. And what an interesting comparison to now, now that I, I used Dr. King as an example in the opposite, but boy, they certainly had the same fate, did they not? And so did... Uh, Jesus Christ, right? Here's a guy who's challenging uh, notions long held by the establishment, uh, but that he grew up in, <laughs> right? right? And right. Uh, and that's we can't have. But that. the way that white people read the historical truth of Jesus, they don't see that. They see as themselves on the side of Jesus, when in fact their mindset <laughs> was the, was on the they, opposite side. Us, yeah, we. Uh, well, you have you have problems feeling solidarity or 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 community or communion with someone who we don't actually identify with. So that's why it's 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 interesting when we're talking about reading new intellectual things and, and learning more. It, if you grew, grew up reading one atonement theory, reading one a, a theology, reading liberation theology or black theology or, or w- the way that they interpret um, the crucifixion or Jesus suffering or how to, how you go, uh, how to go up, you go down that whole thing it's not really it's it's not really through the white experience you know because in the last few hundred years we haven't had to do a lot of that as a um as a culture so uh just experiencing different cultures uh you know is 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 one of the ways to understand that there's different viewpoints and what i think is is jesus is going to be the one guy that votes no you know what i'm saying he's going to be that one guy that votes no out of everyone's like let's do the patriot act let's go to war and there's one who's that one lonely idiot who didn't vote for it? oh that was jesus yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's and that's not necessarily true about how he would vote, but but that is the mentality when you look back at it. That's how I read the gospels now. That Jesus is the one guy saying the thing that nobody wanted to hear, and I read it completely differently when I was a teenager or in junior high. You know what I'm saying? Like and you're always going to read it differently. The more you grow, the mo- the more your life changes and that's a thing that's that's I guess what Ryan's saying about history is that it is not an exact science. It's a thing that changes with our 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 current present predicaments. We look back and we go, "Oh, now we see what that was." As it relates to us now. When I think back on all the crap I It's a wonder I can think at all And my lack of it
Is there a moment, though, when you realize how punk rock Jesus was, and then you go, he doesn't go back to being conservative. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He, he, he continually progresses to get more and more loving. He doesn't go backwards and be like more strict and more conservative. Right. right. The, well, that's what Richard Rohr says, all that rises must converge. And I think that's a beautiful term, because the more that we progress... We the more the more that truth becomes expansive and more that love becomes universal. So we start with our very narrow, biased view of the world and just what is in our sphere and who is with us in our little tribe. And this is just a perfect metaphor for the Bible too. If you look at the tribe of Israel, you know, starting with this little family and then getting big, and then they're supposed to be for all nations, and then they become all inclusive. And then eventually, out of that, Christianity is born and it's taken all over Europe and all over Asia. And so that's the whole thing about spirituality, or you can even say intellect or education. The more you know, the more universal it is, the more expansive it is. All that rises must converge. And I think, uh, you know, in a sense with, um, with Malcolm X there, Ryan, I think that's maybe what occurred to him. You know, um, we can't just be this narrow thing. We have to be inclusive. Certainly. I mean, you know, and uh, the fates of all these people we talked about, I mentioned, Jeanette Rakin, the uh, that senator who voted against World War II, um, she was not reelected. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. so sure. Th- sure those 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 people that challenge our thinking generally they're not rewarded for that. Um, right. and it's it's no. it's us whistleblowers. Yeah, it's us who uh, have to um, take that lesson that we learned from them and. That's their gift to yeah. us, you know. What, Humanity that, has a long line of killing our prophets. Yes. And our seers. Yes. Because we don't like what they have to say to us. Yes. And then we look back hundreds of years later and we go, oh, they were way ahead of their time. They knew what they were talking about. Yeah. And that, you know, that also comes back around to uh, that historian I spoke about. Um, uh, Turner was his last name. Uh Jackson Turner, I want to say his name was, who delivered that uh, speech about the frontier closing. As soon as he started talking about how uh, we're ending our war with uh, Native Americans, how we've conquered the conquered the continent, that is right around the time that we start uh, bemoaning the loss of what we've just annihilated. Right. Okay, so all of a sudden, uh, different... Hmm. Uh, hmm. corporations are picturing Native Americans on their products uh, where, uh, you know, in the next 20 years, radio shows come on, uh, Lone Ranger and his trusty Tonto. We have this image of the Native American that we want to remember. Hmm. But hmm. 20, you know, in, in the 20 years intervening, we did our best to annihilate them. So this this kind of uh, wist, wishful uh, look back to the way we wanted things to be uh, we lose we lose that we lose that lesson uh, as soon as right. we've gotten rid of our profits. As soon as we've gotten rid of something, uh, we try to recast it in our own image. Man, that's so interesting. That's so interesting that that's the way we do it. Like, uh, I just think it's interesting though that you say that we kind of mourn the loss of something right after we've destroyed it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know the the most 
the the best book about Native Americana that I can recommend that I've read because it absolutely shook me to my core and everything I believed, and it absolutely recast everything uh, everything that I look at historically involving Native Americans. That book is called uh, The Inconvenient Indian, and I highly recommend it. Nate, do you have any more questions? How do we get to a place where we're even willing to hear the fact that maybe the creation story is not literal? Maybe the whale didn't <laughs> swallow the guy. Maybe Abraham Lincoln was just trying to use the South to get more power in the North. For instance, I know the people when you said Malcolm X, our white listeners, just kind of cringe because they don't know they don't know anything about Malcolm X. They don't know anything about the history of Malcolm X. They just go, "I've heard he's bad." Yeah, he's he said, "Oh yeah, he said bad things." And, oh yeah, uh-huh. and and we don't do that. So I had that reaction for a split second in mm-hmm. my mind. Mm-hmm. How do we begin to change that? Sorry, that's a long. Uh, I just like that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have an answer. I I think for me it came. Um, I don't know. Probably, I think I was a a senior in high school when um, I read something that uh, absolutely changed the way I thought and set me on a different track. But it was a choice to read a book that someone recommended to me, someone that I respected, someone that I looked at and said uh, that person. Um, challenges the way I think and makes me angry maybe by what they say, but they're not saying it out of ignorance. They're saying it out of... What book was that? If I Uh, That book, that's another uh, one that was really rough for me, but that is a book called How the Irish Became White. Oh. (laughs) And that was uh, written by a guy named uh, Ignatiev, Noel Ignatiev, and he was the proponent of a theory... Uh, at that time in the 90s, uh, late 90s, that was um, getting a lot of criticism, that the idea of race is nothing but a social construct. There is no such thing as race. And if we we can agree that there's no such thing as race, we can eliminate in a couple of generations the idea of racism. Right. Now, he was uh, discredited later um, in great part because he was uh, at a college and – See if I can remember this story. He was at a college and he was in charge of uh, some of student housing. And uh, there was a, uh, I believe, like a, a Jewish American cultural club that was living in that area, in that housing. And they wanted a, uh, like, a, uh, they wanted to have a microwave that could do just their kosher food, uh, right? So they didn't cross contaminate. Right. And he said no. And they're like, why not? And he's like, this is how racism starts. And I'm not going to do it. (laughs) And so he was kind of ousted from his post by a very dedicated group of students that wanted to label him as an anti-Semite. Wow. Um, But he was just convicted by it. But you're not going to change people's religious practices. Probably not. But I mean, like, what a crazy idea, (laughs) right? I mean, like hard because they're 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 technically a, a people group and a religion at the same time. So that's a hard one. That's a, that, that, that's a super tall order to try and fight that one. But, right. Uh, definitely, <laughs> definitely a man who stood by his principles, but, uh, right. yeah. So how the Irish became white is a chronicle of, um, you know, uh, Irish immigrants during the, uh, during the 1840s, during the, during the famine in Ireland, were pouring in right. by the hundreds of thousands. And, uh, that was our, um, 
our uh, mm. racism du jour <laughs> of uh, yeah. immigrants that we didn't like at the time. Uh, so how did those Irish, how do we forget that? How do in a couple right. of generations we forget that this country absolutely detested Catholicism and absolutely detested Irish, Irish immigrants? And yeah, uh, Irish immigrants were the worst. I mean, we've all seen gangs in New York, right? That's actually uh, somewhat uh, parts of that movie are uh, uh, fairly accurate. And that comes from a great book that was written, I believe, in the 30s by the same title um, about what caused a uh, what causes ghettoization of um, of a people group. And that's an interesting study, too. We you know, my family came from Ireland in that, in that period of time as well. And uh, we are afraid there's uh, we're forced into a place where people don't like us and we're going to stick together. We're going to speak Gaelic. We're going to go to mass and we're going to avoid amalgamation because no one wants us to amalgamate. Much like the Muslims who are, you know, refugees in our country currently. Yeah. What, what, uh, what, uh, what promises have we given them that amalgamation would be good for them? What examples have, do they have to work off of that amalgamation into American culture is good for them? They have and what's the difference between amalgamation and, and assimilation? Is it just a degree? <laughs> wow, that is that would be a podcast in itself. We'll wiki, we'll, we'll I won't Wikipedia it because Wikipedia will have it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, when you yeah, hear yeah. a term like we, you know, I mentioned Malcolm X. If you hear that name and immediately recoil, um, then as a human, as a as a uh, someone who values intellect. If I recoil from something, I'm going to go research it. Right. And if I find out that there's something there that I did not discover, then I want to thank that person who made me recoil. Hey, that's a good that's a good that's a good answer to the question that I was said earlier. Yeah. Is that if you recoil from information that you hear from somebody, you should immediately go research it. Yeah. Yep. If it makes you sick, read it. Yeah. Because <laughs> the tendency is on the other side is to go, "No, I'm going to st- stay away from it as far as I can. I'm not right. going to touch it. And then you get more entrenched in your own thoughts, and then all of a sudden you die alone. <laughs> a young student came up to Frederick Douglass when he was speaking one time uh, in the 19th century, and uh, an African-American uh, student approached him and uh, said you know, so- something to the effect of uh, – you know, what should I do with my life? You know, I, you know, you're Frederick Douglass, you're an inspiring figure. What should I do with my life? And, and Frederick Douglass said, agitate, always agitate. <laughs> and I think that's, uh, I know you guys are in the same camp as that, which is, you know, okay, I recoil from something. Uh, I'm going to go study it. Or I love saying this one thing because it makes people recoil. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I should explore my beliefs on that. Things that I hold I'm- really dear. Have you seen my Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I, true. Matt's Facebook is one of my favorite things in my life. Right now. It's just like <laughs> it's it's just incredible. I, I yeah spend absurd amounts of time on that. Provoke and inspire, my friend. That's what that's my my life's motto. Yeah, <sighs> that about uh, wraps it up. Brian Downs, the pirate of Puget Sound, <laughs> with his sea plow out there at Orcas Island. <laughs> Uh, I did, yeah. That's on my I, card. I knew, actually. It. I knew it. The Pirate of Puget Sound, right there, Ryan Downs. And, I got and, one for you, Ryan Downs, the Pirate of the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Pac-Nor hey, Ryan, Pirate. <laughs> Ryan, what's the 
what's what's the if someone wants to take a trip on your boat where do they go so the website uh just got the domain so it'll be up in the next few days uh that is uh www.cascadiadiscoveries.com and uh i have a facebook for cascadia discoveries uh which is up right now so if you you know you have a spouse and you want to get a history lesson and ride on an old boat go hit uh go hit ryan up um Thank yeah. you so much, Ryan. You guys can always email us if you have any questions. I'm sure we missed a lot of content. Don't email the trolls at gmail.com or through our contact form at trollspodcast.com, Twitter at trollspod, and Instagram at trollspodcast. Thanks for talking to us, man. I love the conversation. This is a pleasure. I've been wanting to do this for a while. This is great. All right, Ryan. Thanks for uh, your time, man. We really appreciate it. When I think back on all the crap I It's a wonder I can think at all And my lack of education hasn't hurt me